I think for each one of us, we have to decide how we're going to navigate the aging process. For those that decide that they don't want to do Botox and fillers and, and things like that, that's a choice and there's no judgment. And for the people that do choose to do those things and for self-reflection, I think it's, it's fair for me to say I do Botox, mostly to kind of keep this wonky like lit up a little bit. But with that being said, I think whatever choices we're making, we can all agree that each one of us has the ability to make the choice that is a reflection of what we want to be, which allows for us to be fully authentic. Girl, you've got questions. Questions about your body and how to feel good in it, about your hormones and how to keep them in check. Questions about your sex life and your whole health. Can you imagine having a best girlfriend who was also a triple board certified OBGYN? A girlfriend doctor you could call and ask or tell her anything. Someone who could show you how to live any stage of life before, during, or after menopause in a big, bold, and beautiful way. Well, friends, I'm your girlfriend doctor. I believe you were meant to flourish and shine, to embrace life and awaken to all its possibilities. Let's get there together. Welcome to our show. One of the challenges that we face is when we hit a plateau, when everything we do stops working and we think, okay, well, what do we need to change? I mean, that was one of the reasons I wrote Menu Pause, the five common dietary changes that I needed to make and other things we need to look at when we hit that plateau. And it's very interesting that over our evolution of medicine, over my 30 years in medicine now, to see something called insulin-sensitive diabetes and insulin-sensitive type of insulin resistance or insulin sense or your your diabetic you have high blood sugars even though you're insulin sensitive it's really a confusing area of medicine and i want to share with you someone who's been dig digging deep into the research around this to help herself her clients and other people, when we hit that conundrum, like what's going on? This doesn't seem right. What's the underlying reason? And I think this is the time to have the discussion. So I'm bringing on Cynthia Thurlow, who's a nurse practitioner and an expert in intermittent fasting when it comes to women, women's health as an advocate for women. So we don't experience burnout. So we don't experience the challenges that take us down a road that, you know, we're not living a life of joy and well-being. So I want to bring on today a dear friend of mine and a colleague and an amazing speaker and influencer and creator, and that is Cynthia Thurlow. So here we go. Welcome, Cynthia, to the Girlfriend Doctor Show. It's good to have you back here. So good to be back, my friend. Always great to connect with you and connect with your listeners and followers. Well, we definitely have so many synergies and my audience has loved your book on intermittent fasting transformation and everything that you're doing. We love your Instagram. I'm a big follower and fan. Uh, you'll see my likes periodically showing up and I just love how you present and share your, your message with the world. And I have introduced you prior to bringing you on here to talk about insulin sensitivity and this whole conundrum, like what the heck is going on with this? And, and before we dig deep into that, just to share some of your backstory on how you're, you're working to conquer some of these metabolic flaws that our bodies can experience. Yeah, no, thank you for that. I, I think that over the last 20 plus years, I've either worked in cardiology as an NP, or I've really been in this metabolic health space. 
And I jokingly say, but I mean this, I mean this enthusiastically that metabolic health is wealth. When we know that only seven to 8% of our given population is metabolically healthy, that really speaks to the fact that we as a population are doing things that are impacting our ability to remain insulin sensitive, meaning that our bodies can effectively utilize this hormone in a way that allows us to use different types of fuel substrates. So using carbohydrates or fats as a fuel source, unfortunately, in our hedonistic, you know, culture of getting access to food any time of the day, anywhere we are, whether you're in an airport, a gas station, your grocery store, we've conditioned our patients to believe that we need to eat frequently in order to stoke our metabolism, in order to maintain our metabolism. And I'll be the first person to say that from my perspective, this frequent eating has really contributed to a lot of metabolic health issues, not just insulin resistance, diabetes, but things like polycystic ovarian syndrome, infertility issues, really looking at cardiovascular disease, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease or NOFLD, a whole slew of metabolic health issues, and later seeing in individuals their cognitive and neurocognitive health declining. So looking at Parkinson's and dementia and Alzheimer's really is a byproduct of lifestyle medicine. So from my perspective, the most important information that we can convey to our patients and to our listeners and to our clients is helping them understand how sleep and stress and nutrition and meal frequency and macros and exercise have tremendous impact on our health and our longevity. And I, I think for many people, and certainly I used to hear it in cardiology all the time, people make assumptions. Oh, it's common to be obese and overweight by X age. It's common to have aches and pains. It's common to have poor sleep and how so many of us have been conditioned to accept these things. And I'll be the first person to say that does not have to be our destiny. So a lot of the work that I do is helping people understand the net impact of these lifestyle choices and how we can make better choices. I am the first person to say that you can't change everything all at once, but small changes in each one of those areas I've identified can have a tremendous impact. And the thing for me that is incredibly gratifying, as I'm sure it is for you too, when we have patients that can stop taking medications because their blood pressure is normalized, they're no longer diabetic, they no longer need to be on lipid lowering medications. Maybe they're in a position now where their thyroid has improved so much that they can get off thyroid medication. Unfortunately, I'm not one of those people. However, I think it's really helpful when we can reduce the amount of prescription medications our patients are taking even. And so that has allowed me over the past 20 years to really start the conversation, to be able to look at the research, to be able to present, you know, at different talks and, and different medical conferences, talking about some of these subtleties that go on. And, and for me, it's incredibly gratifying when people can wake up in the morning and feel well-rested. They have plenty of energy to devote to their loved ones. Um, they're not falling asleep in the middle of the afternoon. They're able to feel vital. And, you know, I know you and I speak to this a great deal that, you know, especially as middle-aged women wanting to feel as good as good on the outside as we do on the inside. And so really, really helpful to help people kind of reframe their expectations about the aging process and do it in a way that's very healthy. You know, I'm never going to be someone that is going to speak from a position of saying, you know, what's right for me, maybe right for every other person, but helping people kind of create customized ways to navigate the changes that are their bodies are going through. 
I think that's so true. I mean, it's a it's a collaboration. I would say it's a collaboration with our patients and through I have 30 years in medicine now, right? So I've been at the at 30 years. And one of the things that I recognized is that the prescription medications that we would give our patients didn't necessarily make them feel better. In fact, usually made them feel worse. And while their numbers may have improved, whether it was cholesterol or blood pressure, they didn't feel better. And practicing lifestyle medicine, working through what I call the keto green detox and hormone replenishment uh, methods that then they they feel great because our spirit doesn't age. Our spirit is ageless. And then we can keep our body in line with our spirit. That is, I mean, that's just, that's where all the passion comes from. And that's everyone's right. And it's often not a, it's not big changes, like you said, it's the little things. And I will say it's the next, one next right step at a time, one next right step at a time to keep it simple. Yeah. And I I think for so many people, you know, right now there's this kind of backlash. I don't know if you've been noticing on social media, whether it's Paulina Poroskova, who's still a beautiful woman in her fifties, you know, Justine Bateman, who just wrote a book talking about navigating the aging process. Speaking of which they're in this vid, this 60 minute UK story together on on aging, right? It's, you know, they did the 60 minutes from UK or Australia. Sorry if I got that wrong. But it's a beautiful documentary on on their journey and how they're embracing their aging. And it's not right, like you said, not without backlash. There's a tremendous, yeah. And, and it's interesting because I, I follow both of them on social media. Just, I mean, they both have beautiful spirits and a beautiful message. And I think for each one of us, we have to decide how we're going to navigate the aging process. For those that decide that they don't want to do Botox and fillers and, and things like that, that's a choice and there's no judgment. And for the people that do choose to do those things and for self-reflection, I think it's it's fair for me to say I do Botox, mostly to kind of keep this wonky like lit up a little bit. But with that being said, I think whatever choices we're making, we can all agree that each one of us has the ability to make the choice that is a reflection of what we want to do, which allows for us to be fully authentic. And then we have the opposite end of the spectrum with our, like, I, have, I love Madonna. I love Madonna, but like, what has she done to her beautiful self? It's no longer authentic. And there's that trade-off, like why, you know, I was asked why, why did we go to that extreme? And I, and I used to own a med spa. I used to do Botox and administer fillers and all that good stuff, especially G-spot fillers, still believe in those ones. (laughs) But, but, you know, with, you know, and then think, okay, sometimes the client would spend more on that, that treatment than they would on their health and nutrition, which is going to give you that beauty from the inside out and that radiant glow that's long lasting. And so, you know, and then I looked at Botox as an adjuvant, not to argue yay or nay, and there's some definitely safer ones than others, but as an adjuvant, like affect potentially affecting the immune system. And, and I think like for me, it was, you know, it's probably uh, eight years since I've done any Botox or filler on myself. But with that said, just because I want to recognize my smile lines and my laugh lines. I want to have my expression. I'm raising a granddaughter. I want to, I want her to see my expression. I know that those visual cues are innately wired within us. And when we take those away, that changes that ability to connect. And we talked about before, like I'm all about connection. I want to have that connection. And um, so it's interesting. I'm not saying I'm never going to do it again. I'm not saying that. Don't hold me to this. 
but like at least for now in the in the long term doing I do my topical skincare regimen, my uh, hormone replenishment, my supplements, my detox, my intermittent fasting, sometimes ex extended fasting, and I do a lot of feasting in between. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's all about balance. It's such a personal decision. And I agree with you fervently that there are definitely some extremes where people have really gone to one extreme or the other, and and they don't look anything like they used to look. And I, I don't, and would not imagine that they're probably happy with that decision. But once something's been done surgically, sometimes it's very hard to reverse or correct it. So I always look at people like that with tremendous grace. I'm like, they probably thought that was a good idea at the time. And then after the fact, we're like, dang, there's not a whole lot you can do after the fact. But I also think that there has to be some degree of acceptance. Like when I look in the mirror, sometimes I'm like, whoa, you know, cause I feel 30 in my body. You're so gorgeous. You're oh, so gorgeous. you're so kind. I feel 30, but sometimes my, you know, sometimes if you don't have a great night of sleep or wake up in the morning, you're like, dang, where did that come from? But you know, what's the alternative? Right. And, and especially because I have boys, I want them to understand that, you know, if you look at pictures of dad and I from 20 years ago versus now we look different, but not in a bad way. It's just, that is the natural evolution of life. And I don't think anyone wants to see their mom or their grandmom looking like they're 20 years old. So I think there has to be this kind of happy medium of acceptance of, you know, where you are in time and space, but also feeling young and vital and happy. And as you mentioned, the most important thing is connection. All that oxytocin is so important in our lives. And I think for many people, they get fixated just on the exterior and not enough internal work. And that's the most important work is what we do in terms of, you know, supporting ourselves spiritually, mentally, physiologically. It's so true. And I think that the big thing is like, if we're consider ourselves energetic beings, right, we have a magnetism or repulsion energy, right, depending on the frequency. So self love is the highest frequency, we can say that. And this is one thing that we've been doing regularly in my girlfriend, Dr. Club community. So we get on video every couple of weeks. And the thing that I've been, we've been working on is when we look at a mirror, that we look at ourselves with love and a grace. Like when you see that you're going to be walking by a mirror, now you're reprogramming to look at what you love about yourself, to reprogram your mind. So the first thing is that you're really focusing on your positivity. And like the thing, like, you know, I, I would say, you know, I can look in the mirror and say, God, I look old today. No, instead I go, I'm not dehydrated today. Let me drink <laughs> some more water and minerals, mm -hmm. right? I think there's, there's that piece, which is so funny. So, you know, drink some minerals and water. Like, how do we look at that in concept? Or, you know, one of the things that I teach too is a word that makes you smile. Because at the end of the day, we're going to have lines and we want them to be smile lines and laugh lines versus frown lines. And I, I love I'm a great absorber, observer of people. And I think it's because I went to osteopathic med school and they'd make us sit and watch people walk and watch their body and their, their, you know, expressions to see, are they in pain? Are they off? You know, where is their lack of alignment? What are they, you know, injured, you know, injuring to? And then I trained in Egypt in Alexandria at a hospital there, and they didn't have all the diagnostic tools that we had. So the physicians there just blew me away because they could see someone and say, this is their diagnosis. They, I mean, it was just profound to be able to have those clinical cues that our body's telling us. And it starts with like the, you know, part of it is, is the, our body is expressing what's happening internally, whether it's through, you know, disease process or it's internal thought processes. So changing our internal thought processes 
it's really, I think that's, that's been a part of my discipline, certainly, you know, to when I go to look at myself in the mirror, to look at what I, what I like, to focus on what I like, the compliment, prepare to give myself a compliment versus a criticism. That's not, I mean, that's not, that has not been easy, Cynthia, I'm telling you. Well, I think, I think all of us, I mean, that reframe is so important. I know that there's that internal dialogue. We all have bad days. And I think for me, it's so important to make sure that I reflect a healthy kind of internal dialogue within my family because I have teenage boys and yes, opposite gender, but still equally important for them to understand because I'm the first kind of female figure that they've had in their lives. And so I want them to understand that, yes, women over time will look different and that's not a bad thing. Can I run as fast as I did when I was 17? Absolutely not. Am I okay with that? Yes. But there's so many other things that I can do now that I couldn't do before. And so I think it's important for all of us to really reflect on how people are perceiving how we are navigating these changes in middle age. Like I I have so many girlfriends, although not many that will say, oh, I've got, you know, my hands ache every morning, my feet ache every morning. You know, I'm not receptive to taking this medication. My sleep is really poor and how much that impacts how they move, how they perceive their world, how they can interact with others. Because if you're not well-rested, you're not going to be as patient. You're not going to be as tolerant. You're not going to be as sharp mentally as you would like to be. And for me, I always say with boys, it's like, I have to keep up with them. Like, I don't ever want to be that person that's sidelined because I've got a sore joint I'm like, I'm always doing the things to make sure I can keep up with them, whatever stage of life they're in. And so it's kind of exciting now, especially because they're teenagers, they're bigger than me. They take great, you know, pride in the fact they're taller than me. They weigh more than me, you know, just seeing how our interactions with one another change, you know, week to week. And even with my husband who is trying desperately to remain as fast as them, he was a college lacrosse player. So he's in his mind, he's always like, once you have an athlete, they're always an athlete. And so it's, (laughs) he's innately competitive with the kids, but it's fun to watch that because we're all young at heart. That's what, that's what we want. We want to remain young at heart. Ah, so true. So true. Well, you know, you've been working in the inner, you know, the intermittent fasting space, and we've talked about this on a prior podcast and your book. And I, I love everything that you share. One of the things that you've been digging into recently is that like to switch the completely switching the conversation, but I'm like, I want to get to this insulin sensitivity in the mm-hmm. diabetic patient. Like what the heck is going on here? Why is this happening? Yeah, it, it's really incident, interesting to me. So I spoke at a medical conference in February and it was talking about the insulin sensitive, obese or overweight patient. And I think for so many of us as providers, we make assumptions. We assume if someone's overweight or someone is obese, that they must be insulin resistant. That's not actually the case. And so when you look at the research of which there's not a lot, but if you look at the research, younger women and men are going to remain even in uh, an obese or overweight state, they're more likely to be insulin sensitive. Women, unfortunately, once they transition into perimenopause, we both know those hormonal changes, especially with estrogen. Estrogen is one of our uh, major insulin sensitizing hormones, but that loss of estrogen, we generally are becoming more insulin resistant. The other things to really think about is visceral adiposity. So we start to think about where are we carrying body fat? Women sometimes hate the fact they carry- Explaining visceral adiposity. So body fat around our organs. (laughs) Yeah, around our major organs, which is, you know, the apple shape is not as um, helpful as the pear shape. So if you- I have the pear shape. I always say, thank you, God, for giving me my weight behind me where I don't see it all the time. (laughs) 
Well, you know, weight in our, in our thighs, our buttocks and our hips is actually protective. It's the, it's the weight that we carry around our visceral organs. So our major organs, stomach, heart, et cetera, that can be detrimental. And we know that that can be much more inflammatory types of adipose tissue or fat tissue. Also important in terms of looking at, do we have infiltration of fat in our livers? Really important. So I think for many years, especially when I kind of, when I was a newbie nurse and a newbie nurse practitioner, we called it NASH non-alcoholic stereotactic hepatic disease. Now it's called non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So this fat infiltration of the liver, if it's very mild, you are more likely to be insulin sensitive, even if you're obese or overweight, but the people that have significant infiltration of fat in their liver. So let me back up a little bit and explain. So our body has a finite amount of resources for stored sugar in the body. So skeletal muscle, we can also store glycogen in our livers. But when we have over gotten to a point where we filled those tanks, so think of it as a gas tank. So specific to each skeletal muscle, specific to our livers, when we've gotten to a threshold in which we have no more ability to store sugar, our body will produce more triglycerides. And so this is when, you know, sometimes I had a lot of patients in cardiology, they had high triglycerides, low HDL, very common to see that. And the first thing we would talk to them about was about their diet, because it's a lot of those processed carbohydrates that will drive high triglycerides, low HDL, but it can also be this loss of insulin sensitivity. So if you are an individual that is concerned about whether or not you are insulin sensitive, you know, the easiest things that you can do is check a fasting insulin. In some instances, there are providers that are now doing abdominal ultrasounds to look specifically at the liver, doing a DEXA scan to see the body composition. So how much muscle tissue, how much fat tissue do you have on your body? And so when I was looking at the literature, the big things that popped out that there were the biggest prognostic indicators was number one, what your liver looked like. Number two, you know, what life stage, particularly a woman is in and women that were younger. So I would say 45 and under average age of menopause here in the United States is 51 women until they go through menopause are at less likelihood to be insulin resistant. That doesn't mean that's the case for everyone. Physical activity plays a large role. So if you're sedentary, if you're doing a lot of sitting and not a lot of exercising and understanding that each time we, we walk or we move our bodies, our muscles are using up stored sugar. So understanding that, that that's one way we can kind of mitigate our blood sugar response is actually being physically active. Lifting weights is also helpful, but those were the, the biggest indicators, the biggest prognostic indicators of whether someone would go on to develop insulin resistance. Now I spoke at the very beginning talking about uh, metabolic flexibility, how many people in the United States are still insulin sensitive, very small percentage of the population, it's about seven to 8%. So more often than not, this is a very small subsect of the population. Interestingly enough, there was one small study that I looked at that was looking with people that were morbidly obese. So people that have a BMI somewhere between 35 and to 40 or greater, there were a small amount of people that actually were still insulin sensitive but again, it really goes back to how are they carrying their, their, their excess body weight and fat tissue. If it's on your hips, your thighs, your buttocks, it is much better for you than if you're carrying it around your middle. And, you know, we used to have a lot of patients in cardiology that would say that their, their inseam was shrinking as they were getting older. And, and they would joke about this, but really it was that their, their waist was getting so large. They had to keep dropping their pants to get underneath their bellies. So understanding that that visceral adiposity, that fat around your abdomen, 
is really a poor prognostic indicator for insulin sensitivity. But those were the major things that we found. It was really interesting to kind of dive into that research because it is such a small amount of individuals that are impacted by that. And we know that things like sleep quality, managing your stress, hormone replacement therapy, if that's important and helpful for you. And again, that's very bio-individual, but I know you and I are both very pro HRT, really looking at meal frequency. So someone that's eating, you know, six to 10 times a day is very likely not going to be as insulin sensitive as someone who eats two or three times a day. And so much of that is uh, a reflection of the macronutrients we choose to consume. So if you're eating a lot of processed carbohydrates, you're eating very little protein, you're eating a lot of inflammatory seed oils, you're going to have a much more exaggerated insulin response. than if you're having protein focused meals, healthy fats, and the right types of carbohydrates, I know both of us are not anti-carb. So I want to make sure I provide that distinction. It's the quality of the carbohydrates. And certainly if you are insulin sensitive, you can get away with more carbohydrate intake, but those were the kind of the big takeaways from the research that I looked at. And I'll definitely make sure that I will share those articles with you. So you can include them with this podcast episode. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Plus, the thing that you've been focusing on now is a couple different amino acids, inositol and carnitine, that are beneficial for muscle building and mitochondrial function and metabolism. So let's let's talk about that and why those are great to add into our nutritional regimen in isolation. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, I love creatine monohydrate. And so this is one of the most researched supplements or ergogenic aids that's out there. It's very safe. What's interesting is women have less endogenous, meaning our body makes less creatine than men. So we make 70 to 80% less. So just at the, just at the starting point, we actually benefit enormously from taking supplemental creatine monohydrate women that are still menstruating. We know that there's research that demonstrates there are certain times in a woman's menstrual cycle where they need more creatine than others. The, the other thing that's very helpful. So is that, is that during ovulation that they need mm -hmm. more creatine? Yeah. Yep. And so the other thing that's really interesting is sarcopenia, this muscle loss with aging. It's not a question of if, but when, and so helping women understand that we want to maintain lean muscle mass throughout our lifetime. And if you're not working against this, it will happen faster than, than you can imagine. So at the age of 40, we're losing starting to lose more muscle than, than, it, than we're, we're gaining muscle. And so I, I typically describe it for those that are very visually oriented, young muscle is like a filet mignon and older muscle is like a ribeye, right? Both are delicious. Both are very different. You know, filet is mostly muscle and a ribeye is marbling of fat with the muscle. And that's what starts to happen. We start replacing adipose tissue with the muscle tissue. And so when we have less muscle, we start losing insulin sensitivity. And so very, very important to, to utilize things like creatine and they're used in, you know, if you are a female, it's three grams a day. If you are a vegetarian, a vegan or a male, you can use five grams a day, very safe at those doses that will help replace these intracellular stores of creatine monohydrate. What I find for a lot of people, it also has some mental health benefits. So people feel, you know, that, and obviously I'm not a psychologist, so I want to be careful when I use this terminology, um, can help with mood, can help with sleep quality. You know, for me, the feedback that we've gotten about creatine monohydrate, it's really run the gamut, but we have people in their seventies that are lifting every time they go to the gym, they're able to lift uh, heavy weights. We have a mutual friend, Sandy Scheinbaum, and she's been using creatine and she's 73 years old, which she's is amazing. amazing. And so she talks about her gains in the gym and how much she can do in her leg press. 
And so these are really things that can be very beneficial, but I would argue for women that are middle-aged, even more important because we have so much accelerated muscle loss, unless we are eating enough protein, unless we are lifting heavy weights can really accelerate. So we want to maintain that insulin sensitivity. And then the other product that I kind of- Well, wait, I want to just say with creatine, that three grams per day, you want to load, do it every day for five days at least. Be very continuous with it to replenish those depleted stores, to really build up that reserve back. So that consistency, which is always my challenge, Cynthia, that consistency is really important. So yeah, I've been absolutely. mixing it with Mighty Maca. I've been mixing your creatine monohydrate. I love it. It's clean. I've been mixing it with my Mighty Maca midday uh, just to make sure I'm getting that in because that's something yeah. I always like the thing. I always do my Mighty Maca every day. So I'm going to add something else or at least once or twice a day. So to make it make it easy for yourself to remember. Absolutely. And the thing that's really great about the creatine is it blends seamlessly. So I'll actually sometimes put it in my water with some lemon during my feeding window and it blends seamlessly. So it's not chalky or powdery, which is really nice. And then the other supplement that for me has been a total game changer is myo-inositol. And so this is something that our bodies can actually produce on their own. However, what's interesting is you look at the research on myo-inositol, both of these supplements that we're referring to really impact the mitochondria. So powerhouses of our cells, but what I love about myo-inositol, it has a lot of different uses. You can use it for insulin sensitivity. There's a lot of solid research in metabolic syndrome, PCOS, but it's also very helpful for sleep quality, both with sleep architecture, sleep onset, and also sleep duration. And for me, it was the one supplement that allowed my sleep quality to improve tremendously. And I'll give everyone an example. I have an aura ring. I track my metrics, tracking my metrics. Cause I'm a data nerd is one of my favorite things that I do. And so when I'm able to track my metrics, I could look like my deep sleep was doubling. You know, we, we typically want to have at least 90 minutes of REM and deep sleep. All of a sudden I'm having two and a half, three hours of deep sleep. So myo-inositol was improving my sleep metrics. And this is in conjunction with, I take HRT, I get plenty of exercise. I get sunlight exposure. I was doing all of those things, but for so many people, it helps with sleep architecture. And then the last aspect of myo-inositol, and there's a lot of really good research and getting ready to bring on a mutual friend to talk about this mood disorders. So anxiety, depression, Dr. Roseanne's going to come on and we're going to talk about that because she uses it a lot in her practice. Oh my God. I can't wait to hear that episode because yes. she's so great. She yeah. is amazing. And actually she was really excited when I said, this is you know the next supplement I'm going to do. But the amount of individuals that have reached out just to say, oh my gosh, I never realized my sleep quality could be that good. And these are people in their 30s, their 40s, their 50s, their 60s. So wide range of ages, especially for younger women when they're getting close to menstruation. So when they're having these fluctuations in progesterone and their sleep quality is kind of eroding anyway, really helps kind of find that buffer. I have a couple women who've reached out, someone on my team um, in particular, who's like, I use it from the ob- day I ovulate until I get my menstrual cycle. And like, I have no issues with anxiety, you know, mood issues. I'm sleeping so much better. She's like, I'm so glad to no, no longer be taking prescriptive sleep aids. This is so much easier. So those two are, have really been, um, I, I humbly say have really been instrumental in allowing me to continue to build muscle as a middle-aged woman and really improve my sleep quality, which for me, so, so important. 
So, and I think also monitoring, inositol has been around for a long time, myo-inositol, yeah. and it, there's so much safety with it. The same yeah. with creatine, again, in yeah. moderate doses. And what both of these, like the angle that you took, there's sleep restoration, number one, and um, muscle regeneration and support. I mean, those are two things that's going to increase your natural growth hormone. So it'd be beautiful to watch your growth hormone shift, be able to check your IGF-1 and growth yep. hormone levels over time to see, because we know that sleep and muscle are two things that increase our growth hormone healthy levels, in, you know, as part of the aging well and, and resilience. So yeah, I applaud you on these two, keeping it simple, right? Just keeping it simple, making it easy, keeping it clean, being able to trust the source of the ingredients. And because that's, that's a challenge. I know from making my own products, like you really got to be able to trust your trust your source. And I appreciate the research and that and standards that you put behind these products. I, so I love them. I love them. I'm glad you're doing it. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. And I would just and add with sleep. I'm always like with the magnesium L3 and supporting herbs as well as my chili bed, chili pad bed. I think it's called something different now, sleep me or whatever. But oh my God, that is like the best thing. Yeah. No. And it's funny how uh, I jokingly say that sleep has become an art form. And so for me, it's, I know that at a certain time I take my myo inositol, I take a couple other things depending on, you know, what my stress level is. And, you know, for me, I, I jokingly was telling my husband that I just came back from LA. I was at a business event last week and I think I forgot to take progesterone two nights in a row. And I know we've talked about one night is fine, two nights. Oh my goodness. I woke up in the middle of the night and I could tell my progesterone levels must've been pretty low because it was like the anxiety. I was like, Oh my gosh, what's going on. And then I was like, I thought to myself, I forgot my progesterone. <laughs> so wow. um, definitely for me, that was not intentional. Um, and normally I'm very, you know, compliant, but it was one of those, I was like, I think I just forgot. And I was telling my husband, it's amazing. Once you have really good restorative, high quality sleep, when you don't, you're like, wow, how many people suffer with poor quality sleep. I, I cannot tell you how many healthcare providers have just reached out to me and said, I haven't slept well for 10 years. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you're not like, you're not dealing with babies. You have grown children and 10 years into menopause. And these are nurses, sometimes PAs, doctors that will reach out and just kind of tell me this is just what they've gotten accustomed to. And you wonder why they're inflamed, you know, why they're dealing with insulin resistance, why they're, you know, they're not able to deal with the cumulative stress that, that they're experiencing day to day. And a lot of it has to do with not having that restorative time sleeping. Yeah. And uh, back to what we started talking about beauty, right? S mm -hmm. Sleep is beauty sleep. And we used to say in the med spa, you know, this procedure will make it look like you got a good night's sleep. And then I'd be like, <laughs> why don't we just get a good night's sleep, right? Let's yep. just focus on getting that good night's sleep. So thank you so much, Cynthia, for being here on the Girlfriend Doctor Show today. And I'm just going to, you know, go through a couple of the highlights from our conversation today and just talk about a couple of, of the key points. And first of all, thank you so much for being here and being girlfriend on the Girlfriend Doctor Show and sharing your information so generously and, and everything you do. And I love that you said the metabolic health is wealth, right? And that frequent eating contributed to metabolic diseases, because how often have we been told, you know, three meals, three snacks, and we know that that is destructive to our metabolism. And we need to stop that. There's no good reason for that. And then 
talking about like our look, how we look in the mirror, we need to reframe that internal dialogue and really maintain that youthfulness at heart. We got deep into some science with insulin sensitive, obese or overweight patient and how fatty liver lifestyle, certainly it's lifestyle diet, but also hormone disruptors that contribute to that. And to look at three things like in evaluating this issue is what does the liver look like? What are the ages and what's the physical activity? And when we address those three things, we can get to some of the root causes to recreate, to support metabolism and metabolic health. And then dealing, digging deep into sleep quality and how myo-inositol can really help with that. Helps with insulin sensitivity, which most many people, again, there's the very few or dwindling number of insulin sensitive people around the world. And that myonositol can help with mood and anxiety and sleep structure. And the benefits of creatine monohydrate, three grams per day is the magic number loading dose to help with um, building muscle and maintaining muscle and mitochondria as we age. So, so much great conversation with you today. And I want to thank you so much for being on the Girlfriend Doctor Show. And you guys check out Cynthia Thurlow. Please follow her on Instagram and your website and where, and we'll put links below to get your product to get your creatine and your myonositol, put direct links in the show notes, but tell our audience where they can connect with you. Yeah, easiest way to connect is on my website. So www.cynthiathurlow.com. You can get access to Everyday Wellness Podcast where Dr. Anna has been a guest several times. You can check me out on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, before warned, I'm a little snarky. And then I have a free Facebook group called Intermittent Fasting Lifestyle Backslash My Name that men and women are welcome to join, but that's probably the best place to find me. And you can get a direct link to my book, Intermittent Fasting Transformation, the first book written by a clinician for females as it pertains to fasting. Thank you. Thank you, Cynthia. Thanks for being here. And for everyone, thank you so much for being part of the Girlfriend Doctor community. Thank you for sharing and liking this episode and leaving your reviews. That makes us increase our exposure to so many people. We're at almost 2 million downloads for the Girlfriend Doctor show. And I'm so honored and I couldn't be here without you and amazing guests like Cynthia and so many others that have graced their time generously. So thank you guys for being here. More next time. God bless you. Thank you.